Welcome to the School of Risk podcast where successful risk takers are made and celebrated. Our mission is to help you become successful risk takers. I am your host Chizubale Gwodo and today with me on the show is Trevor Jones. Trevor is one of my favorite risk takers being the CEO of a security and intelligence company operating out of Denver, Colorado in the United States. To enjoy our daily shows, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the School of Risk Podcast. Also subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast channels such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or any of the apps you listen to your podcast on so you don't miss out. We will be there. On today's podcast, we will be talking about security and ESG risk. ESG stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. We will be exploring a number of national security issues, the evolution of ESG risk and how it affects sectors such as mining, oil and gas. Are you ready, risk takers? Let's go to school. Trevor, it's great to have you on the School of Risk podcast. Thank you for joining me here to share your wealth of experience around ESG, which is environmental, social, and governance, and also security risk in particular. I'm quite interested in security risk. So please introduce yourself to our listeners and let them know who you are. And let's build this conversation so lots of our listeners can learn from this. Over to you, Trevor. Sure, Jezebel, great to uh, talk to you today. Thanks for having me. And uh, it's always good to, to, to speak to you. Um, yeah, my name is Trevor Jones. I'm the CEO and founder of Lynx Global Intelligence here in Denver, Colorado in the United States. We're making uh, the world's um, most advanced sustainability and security platform uh, for B2B enterprise, um, typically fo focusing on the extractive industry and, and mining and metals in particular. Um, so yeah, it's great to be on. Uh, looking forward to a, a fascinating conversation. Obviously, um, it's fun for the whole family, so to speak, out there in terms of security and ESG right now as we look across the uh, the global landscape. So so looking forward to chatting. Absolutely, it's one of the biggest things being talked about talked about right now, ESG and particularly security risk. And I'm sure you know some of the key news coming out of various parts of the world right now we hearing about what's going on in afghanistan and so on and so forth um but before we delve into it so as the ceo of uh, security of this security and intelligence company what's been your biggest challenge yeah you know i think the global landscape is changing and so the way companies respond to that change is is pretty important and you know we've kind of been included in, in responding to that and i think um, what that's looked like is, um, you know, I guess in the 80s and 90s, um, up until maybe 2001, you know, we were worried in a security sense about state-based actors, um, nation states, um, and the violence that um, can occur between them um, and on occasion uh, to their own citizens in the form of kind of genocide or ethnic conflict. And we really had a, a kind of a state-based approach to security. And then after 9-11, of course, um, we moved into more of a, a counter-violent extremism stance. Um, we're looking at uh, kind of how to take down more uh, agentic networks, so um, smaller groups. Um, but you know, recently, I think we've come to realize that uh, climate change and its effect on society 
you know, these are not agentic threats, right? We can't identify uh, the kind of bad actor um, in a climate change uh, scenario. And so in that case, we have to kind of work together and have a more of a systems level um, thinking. And, and, you know, sustainability was not necessarily my background um, when I got started in this business. And so um, to adjust to that, but also to look at um, very much a, a social and human um, a, a aspect of how climate change is going to affect security on the ground um, is also kind of a big part of, of, of how we're thinking. So just that switch from a more of an agentic look at, at, at a traditional security stance um, to now really looking at um, sustainability and society as, as drivers of security, right? And so um, that, that's been a challenge, but also a wonderful um, opportunity as well. Thanks for sharing that, Trevor. What's been the social impact or what is or are what are some of the social impacts of uh, of um of, of um or what are some of the social impacts of security on organizations and also communities or a nation in general? Yeah, sure. With regard to climate change, I mean, it's you know these are um, complex kind of adaptive meaning you know it's changing from place to place over time. Um, complex adaptive systems, right? And so um, there's kind of a a bit of a multivariate look, if, if you will, um, from a statistical perspective. But yeah, in terms of the, the effects on business, um, so wide ranging, as we look at that S in ESG, um, there's a lot of line items under that S piece that enterprise is gonna wanna assess. And you, know, you start internally and you look at things like gender equity, you look at your workforce, um, you look at things like force labor and um, child labor in certain markets, that kind of thing. Um, but then externally speaking, you know, there's a lot of um, social impact, but um, also social license to operate that's kind of granted by local communities around your operational site, whether that's a port or a factory or a mine, um, like we focus on our, or, you know, a, a, an oil pipeline, you know, you kind of go down that list, but essentially um, the, the community around that asset is, is going is going to go ahead and uh, grant the tacit um, license or you know the acceptance of the community for that asset to, to operate and um, that that can be really big um, for certain industries you know mining in particular where links is um, quite focused right now um, you see a lot of protest social withdrawal of that license to operate um, and that has big you know business discontinuity effects so the bottom line can be quite affected but um, also you know there's Kind of a lose-lose there in terms of um, the enterprise and, and the community as well, because oftentimes um, the community is employed um, by, by local assets, and and you know lo local enterprise has a big responsibility to kind of uphold climate and social standards in, in those areas. So all of that is just to say that an enterprise is really focusing a lot more um, on the S in ESG in terms of that social impact. Um, and really, we're just getting started as kind of a business community, I think, in, in assessing what that is. And for many industries, we're very focused on climate right now and that E and ESG, and, and that's fantastic and, and great and, and dire. We really need to, to reduce the amount of carbon that's being emitted um, because that's kind of where the, you know, the knock-on effects of all these different social things come from. Um, but that said, you know, social scientists now are doing the hard work of, of understanding um, that S and ESG um, a, a lot more so than in the past. That, that's important. Thank you for sharing that, Trevor. Now, 
Is it just, is it just, um, so I know whenever we talk about ESG, environmental, social and governance impact on, you know, in, in our community, in our, in our field of work, the focus tends to be mainly on companies like oil and gas, metals, minerals, mining, and so on and so forth. Outside of that sector, does ESG really concern other types of businesses, you know, those operating in finance and so on and so forth, as much as these environmentally, environmental impacting, um, you know, sectors such as oil and gas mining and so on and so forth? Yeah, absolutely. I, I see what you're saying. You know, if you're if you're sitting in an office in London or Manhattan, it's it's perhaps harder to understand kind of your impact on um, the rest of the world around you based on your industry, and and that's completely understandable. You know, just from kind of a um, you know an empathetic viewpoint, there's a lot of things business have to deal with in terms of risk. Uh, ESG is new to a lot of them, and so just trying to get a handle on on what's forthcoming in terms of regulation compliance. And just you know, internal standards that can improve the bottom line and, and business continuity as well. Um, it can it can be pretty tough. So, so we definitely understand that. Um, you know, I think finance. You mentioned finance, and, and finance has a particular role um, to play in ESG. You know, links talks to um, a lot of banks, and, and we serve um, a couple clients in the finance community that are are working on wrapping financial metrics around these kind of on the ground risk scores for ESG. And so what that means is making investment decisions, um, you know, devalue, uh, I'm sorry, discounting or valuing um, assets kind of based on their ESG profile. And again, it's it's difficult, right? I mean, we're talking about remote sensing, we're talking about remote due diligence, we're talking about um, getting a handle on, on what's going on in, in, a, in a market that's perhaps more affected by ESG um, factors. I know you and I have talked about Nigeria in a lot of our past conversations. So Absolutely, yes. Yeah, so right. And so if we're investing in, in oil and gas in Nigeria, trying to get that ESG profiler, that risk aperture around that asset can be quite difficult. Um, and so that's one thing we're kind of engaged in at links is uh, is trying to help finance um, value those ESG risk factors um, for their portfolios as well, and I think that's just um, you know we all we all know the the, the driver. I kind of um, think that that finance is in the world, and and so um, it's good to to go ahead and try to do that good work now. Absolutely, absolutely, and, I, and a lot of the work I've done. The reason why I ask that question is because a lot of the work I've done has been with a lot of clients in the finance sector, and uh, rarely do I hear of ESG in that sector. Um, and it's important that those other sort of um, organizations, business sectors, start to consider the impact of their activities on the environment. You know, what what has you know to do with carbon footprints and also the social impact as well. Now, you talked about um, social the social impact of um, of licensing uh license to to operate when it comes to minerals now when these organizations are given a license to operate does the scope include esg and particularly on the social side yes a lot is done on, on the on the environmental side more is done on the governance side but more on the social side when it comes to the community because you know, sometimes I'm, I'm go, using the example of Nigeria. We have, you know, incidents like you know blowing up of oil pipelines and things like that, and you have protests because the community is not benefiting from the huge 
resource being taken out of it. And I feel that's the result of not including or not embedding the social element of ESG. What's your take on that? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And first, I think it's important to kind of disaggregate what ESG really even means or or is. I think it's oftentimes this very, very broad kind of acronym that refers to a lot of different factors or phenomena in the world. And trying to put your finger on that is is pretty tough. So, you know, really yeah. the G, the G governance, right? We're talking about a couple of things there. It can refer to external governance of a country, in, in other words, political risk, but more often it refers to the internal processes that a company will go through to report on and comply with different ESG standards, either internally or externally. And that's, um, so that's kind of an external um, facing G function for enterprise, whereas the E and the S really live on the ground, right? We're talking about, yes. you mentioned emissions, we're talking about things like uh, deforestation, you know, dust in the air, we're talking about soil acidity, we're talking about sea level rise. Uh, on the social side, we're talking about you know things that you mentioned as well. You know, social unrest certainly and security issues certainly fall under that S category. There's many other um, kind of categories, or as I call them, line items under that S and ESG. But the way I think about it, uh, Chesavel, is that these things are related, right? So the environment is driving uh, these social effects on the ground. That goes in reverse sometimes, but if we're thinking about this from an enterprise level going um, to an environmentally or socially sensitive area, whether they're proximate to a community or perhaps a sacred site or a heritage area that that needs to be protected. Um, these are the kinds of things enterprise needs need to think about. And when that um, when they fail, you know, when that goes wrong, uh, essentially that will drive a lot of those social grievances. And yeah, in mining, it's the withdrawal of the social license to operate. Um, but in other industries, you know, it can have just there's just can be a lot of knock on effects. Um, based on those environmental grievances. So if the air, water, or land is polluted, um, and also, you know, environment also includes kind of how we perceive our reality. So if there's noise, if there's explosions, just depending on the industry, kind of what what that looks like on the environment side, that can really drive a lot of um, unrest and, and discontinuity issues. On the S side, um, I should also point out, though, again, the S and ESG is expansive. That also includes um, your in internal gender equity, right, at your enterprise, right? Are you paying men and women the same amount of money? Same amount of money, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. And so so that's, you know, just to, to paint that broad picture, um, we need to all focus together on these specific line items for industry, and that way we can um, start to remove accusations of greenwashing and really get down to the good work of impact on the ground as well. Yes. I don't know if you are aware recently in the UK and you know, it's, it's easy now, it's, it's easy, easy enough right now. Um, there was a, there was incident of um, fuel shortage, you know, petrol, diesel, because of the impact of Brexit. Now, a lot of the drivers that cargoes fuel uh, were EU based drivers and they were not able to come into the country because right. of Brexit, many of them left after Brexit because you know they couldn't be bothered with having to deal with the process they have to go through to get a visa and all that. Now, that had an impact on the people, and there was a lot of grievance around that. Why is it that governments don't take, um, you know, 
this element of ESG when making key decisions that could impact the people of the of the of the country they govern? Right, absolutely. And certainly, you know, your kind of ability to conduct commerce and and participate in transportation is um, um, in a way part of that that S piece as well. I think um, you know it depends on the optical pressure that that's coming from the the populace as well. I mean, when we talk about um, government change, for example, we saw a protest in Chile a few years ago based on transportation um, taxes. And then what happens is the that first kind of notion about what the protest is snowballs into a bunch of different knock-on effects and issues that people are trying to reform. Um, you know, in, in this particular case, I, I think it's a case of the government, you know, still not kind of feeling that that optical pressure. I, I also think Brexit is a, you know, kind of a particular political um, situation that, you know, may in some ways kind of fall outside the kind of wheelhouse or arena of of ESG, but certainly, you know, a, a lack of... Does it really fuel, fall outside of it? Well, yeah, I think it's, a, I think it's, a, it becomes an interesting question, right? I think, you know, you, you start to think about um, where are the boundaries there? And if, and if people truly feel that um, essentially governments or companies have, um, let's say, infringed on their on their right to conduct commerce, or in this case, you know, go see their family, or you know, put gas in their car. Yeah, absolutely. I think it. I think it falls in that in that arena. I think. I think it, globally speaking, in a in a totally macro sense, Chesbel, the way the world is heading is we have on one side, um, you know, people who now can communicate in mass rapidly with social media, and these movements can really get started. And you know, you essentially also have on the other side, um, and this is whether this is real or perceived is is a different story. But on the other side, you you have governments and and enterprise that um, essentially are perceived to control these condi conditions on the ground yes. for folks. And um, you know, we we saw it in the United States here um, in in January with events that happened in Washington D.C. We've yes. seen it. Um, <clears throat> you know, the the list is 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 very long in terms it's of endless. The, I know. Yeah, the perceived grievance versus the real grievance that exists on the ground, coronavirus, um, social media, Donald Trump, a lot of things made the, you know, kind of combined to make this factor worse. So just broadening the conversation beyond ESG and, and ESG fits very squarely into this. It's like, how how can um, governments and, and enterprise measure their effect on people and the climate and how can they present that? information whether positive or negative i mean that's the other thing to think about is there's a lot of opportunity here for um governments and companies that are doing the right thing to express that they are doing the right thing and hey here's positive impact and you've seen that in different ways especially during coronavirus companies yeah. stepping up to build health infrastructure in latin america um comes to mind anglo-american in particular was doing that so yeah just to to to, to broaden the conversation i think that we have a we live in such an interesting time. I, I think even in very interesting indeed five years, it's changed uh, more so than maybe even the preceding fifteens. So, yeah, yes. very very interesting. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, moving on to a subject that really interests me, and that's more on the security side of what you do. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about that, and, and I want to start by asking. How can countries or companies, organizations protect the integrity of their natural resources, whether it's metals, oil and gas, etc.? And and it's not just I know that's the area you tend you tend to focus on, but it's not just these 
sorts of organizations, but let, let's start with this sort of organization that we can expand into other sectors as well. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, um, you know, so first of all, we're going to see a large expansion in the number of mines around the world. We need this. Why is that? Yeah, right. I mean, it's it's interesting, right? It's it's kind of contrary to our notion of, you know, what a green economy could be because everybody's pretty aware of kind of some of the deleterious effects mining can have on, on people and um, planet. So, you know, essentially uh, we need more metal for things like solar panels, wind turbines, especially um, batteries is a huge one. Um, things that will help us achieve a green economy by electrifying um, our world are just going to require these basic and rare and critical earths that are around the world. So anything from gold and copper all the way to, to bauxite deposits, you know, um, things at the bottom of the periodic table, if you kind of, you know, that yeah. separate row that they separate from the rest of the periodic table at the bottom there, if you remember back in uh, primary school or elementary Chemistry, school. Yes. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> taking, taking it back to, to those days. Um, the, the, a lot of those elements, so at the bottom of that separated um, area on the periodic table are, are actually critical and rare earth um, minerals and again we need them for the batteries that the things that will allow us to move away from burning fossil fuels as kind of our primary um, source of energy and so um, it's very important that we source those minerals in a responsible sustainable manner and that's where ESG comes in in a in a in a really important way right so if we can use um, sound ESG principles to achieve the kind of mineral growth that we need for our green economy, that's going to help prevent all of these issues that we're talking about. And it's also going to help protect the environment proximate to the mine site. Um, in other words, if we can help reduce deforestation, dust and explosive vibrations, um, you know, water usage, um, things like protecting tailings dams, which is huge. If you if you look at recent events, kind of yeah. in deep dive into the mining industry. So uh, again, ESG there's a lot of pollution coming from that sector. Absolutely, you know, water. absolutely, absolutely, and that's you know that's and they're aware of it too. I think that's the thing is is industry you know now understand. Are these government? Are these organizations doing enough though? You know, I, I think probably the answer is still no. Uh, you know, they need to do a lot more. And, and, and that brings in the government regulation piece as well, where, you know, national governments, for example, Peru, I believe, has some of the best and, and most, you know, regulations about, around mining and water, right? right? They understand it's mission critical. Um, but at the same time, you know, if, if you're polluting the environment around these mine sites, as you're saying, that, you know, that's not only kind of horrible, horrible in terms of your best practices, but it's also going to, um, again, incite that withdrawal of, of social license to operate, and it's going to be a mess. And so um, governments have a huge role to play in terms of instituting sound and smart ESG regulations, and companies need to adopt technologies that are going to help them comply with that, with those regulations moving forward. And that's really what's going to create change and impact on the ground. And, and so I think that's exciting. And, and to your point, also protect those resources, right? Yes. Um, you know, nationalization is is real and and can be threatened. You know, you know Peru's new president, um, I believe, was was threatening that for a while um, while he was campaigning. You know, like uh, like any politician, globally speaking, anywhere on earth, he he kind of walked that back. I think once he was in office and and realized the criticality of 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 that um, business to Peru. But um, you know, if you nationalize resources because you perceive there's poor foreign ESG practice at that 
um, at that asset, you know, that's awful too on all sides. You know, we really need to encourage global commerce, you know, through these responsible practices. So that's just another way to think about it. That's great. Uh, just uh, as you were speaking, something came to mind. Uh, I was thinking about a lot of these organizations that operate in the Western world. A lot of them t uh, uh, you know, uh, set up operations in developing nations like Africa and South America and all that. My Ooh. question is, why don't they operate under the same sort of framework or uh, governance structure as they do when they operate in Western worlds, because it appears the you know the rule is different based on the geography they operate within. I don't know if you get the point I'm trying to make. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, so I think there's there's a couple things there. So um, you know, a nation like Canada has done a, a fantastic job um, by all accounts of um, kind of carving out the regulations they need to um, protect certain elements of the environment and societies and and not to not to say there's not issues in canada there's definitely environmental and social license to operate issues for on um, the extractive industry there no doubt um but in a in a in a in a in a more loosely regulated environment let's say of course they can get away with more and i think before yeah. you know widespread um before the internet let's say just to put a put a broad stamp on it um you know we really didn't um you couldn't kind of report on those issues because they were so far away. I mean, some of the uh, mining concessions we're talking about, for example, 70, roughly 70% of our cobalt comes from Democratic Republic Congo. So, you know, the DRC is, is not an easy place to, to get folks to, but, you know, necessarily operationally. Um, one of our advisors worked there for, for many, many years, and, and the stories, you know, she tells her anecdotally just illustrates all the points we're kind of hitting on here but um now you can report on those things and actually you know one thing we're working on links at, at one thing we're working on at links here is um interpreting um you know videos and other social media posts that come from you know asset level um kind of recordings and, and posts so so we understand what's happening um on the ground and, and so i guess you know to put it bluntly companies could get away with it before um, you've had some recent examples where that's just not going to be the case anymore, um, and again, not to mention the you know business discontinuity and reputational issues that you're going to face. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and and you see the thing is you, you have you know companies like um, Mobile, Chevron, Glencore, mm -hmm. and when it comes mm -hmm. to mining, Rio Tinto, all mm -hmm. these guys you know operate in third. In, in a in in developing countries, yeah, absolutely. You know, so, and you know, I think there's a lot of there's a lot that has to do with accountability in how they practice what they do in this play in these countries. Not just when it comes to taking out the resources, but also ensuring that um, there's that level of ESG that you know that is implemented in the region where they where they extract these resources. Because I know. You know, it might, for a number of reasons, corruption being one, um, mm -hmm. some of these governments operating in these developing nations may not withdraw these licenses. So, if the if they are being allowed to operate, and be a bit negligent when they they can't do the same thing, you know, maybe in in the countries where they originate from, then that, that that's uh, there has to be a way of holding them accountable, don't yeah. you think? Yeah, that, that's the other. That's that's a great point, Chesabel. And one thing I was going to mention, um, 
was that the, there is a now emerging international set of standards that should, and this is where finance really comes in too, because you know that that system will also be held held account to some of these standards globally. So regardless of what you know, whether you're in Canada or Nigeria or mm-hmm. Oklahoma, you're going to have to. Uh, start to understand these standards if you want to receive foreign direct investment, for example. Um, so that kind of regime, I think, is really important in terms of global standards. And, you know, you see um, entities like ICMM in London, you know, the, the kind of standards makers or standards bodies, um, they become really important in that way of, of starting to adopt some global notion. Um, and, you know, that's really important because what happens environmentally you know, especially with emissions in one country, you know, emissions don't see borders, right? Emissions aren't going through customs where we all experience the knock-on effects of, you know, these envir- these environmentally kind of perilous um, industries or, or deleterious industries. And so um, that that really should be a global standard, right? Because we're feeling that effect globally, you know, nations. So. Yeah, I mean, in many, many, many cases, and, and this is actually one reason China and the U.S., uh, get along with climate change is because uh, we understand it's a shared responsibility in that case. There's many other things that, of course, we don't get along, um, you know, with other nations because they deserve to be able to make their own kind of right uh, laws inside their own own borders. So without going down that road, uh, politically speaking, and and keeping the focus on ESG, I think, yeah, the um, the goal there is to have some shared standards and yes. companies feel the pressure from investors and from consumers to adhere to those globally. Great. That's great news. Absolutely. And I, and I know we tend to, you know, blame governments and companies as well, mm-hmm. you know, and hold them accountable. I think it goes beyond them. I think the community at large needs to also be involved. They have a measure of accountability as well. What do, what do they need to do? I mean, they could report breaches and things like that. Uh, I mean, you know better, you know, operating in this field, how how can communities, yeah. we just don't want to hold, we just don't want to blame the government for everything because the government is yeah. not to blame for everything. I mean, to be honest, if, if, if we're to be frank about it, it's not, the companies are not just all to blame yeah. for everything. You know, we, we, the community okay. sometimes, you know, also shares a part in how yeah. resources are, explore, are, are exploited from their region and how they conduct this you know, themselves around these um, organizations. Uh, how, how can they, how can, com- how can individuals or community, communities be part of this whole journey? Yeah, great question. And I think, right, to say it's one way or the other would be just, you know, that's a fallacy, right? It's, it's of course, a, a complex system where communities, enterprise, governments, individuals, you know, the environment itself, the way the climate, you know, responds to the pressures we put on it, all of these things combine to, you know, to create the texture of the reality that we kind of experience on the ground, as they say. So, um, yeah, great, great question. I think, you know, it has to revolve around that social license to operate. It's a mutual buy-in between community and, and enterprise where, enterprise says you know for the community we're going to support job growth sound economic conditions sound working conditions sound environmental conditions you know we go down the the line items of those kind of um, esg pieces that we really need to take care of on the ground um and as you're mentioning by the same token um you know the community um you know the the way i want to say this chesbel is that perception really 
um, matters in these cases. Yeah. And one thing that's very um, attractive to me or magnetic to me about using technology to measure these issues um, is that we can actually create some sort of empathy between very different groups, right? So if we can show um, if the water is really polluted, we can show if the air is really dirty or not, then um, we can start to create a source of truth um, among the community, especially so they can you know, respond in a way um, that really addresses the true issues that are out there and, you know, uh, you know, sets aside things that uh, maybe enterprises, you know, actually really trying pretty hard at, at fixing, right? I mean, there's a, there needs to be some sort of mutual, um, you know, trust or faith between those two parties. Yeah. Um, and that, and that, if you read my bio, you know, it says creating empathic space between enterprise and communities is really my passion because that's a hard one, right? It's I mean, a that's, hard a, one. that's a, 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 I don't know, you know, nobody's going to solve that in their lifetime. And I'm, I'm, I'm hyper aware of that. <laughs> You've taken on a big uh, challenge with that. Yeah, right. Exactly right. And I think that's what technology allows us to start thinking about is, you know, can we go beyond the traditional tools that we've used and it's only gotten us so far? So if we can arm that, um, you know, community relations manager at an oil and gas company or a mining company to really understand what the community is saying and what their feedback How do you is. arm them? How do you yeah, give them yeah. what they need? Yeah, great question. And it's something we're working on a lot. So certainly social media is a big place where many communities around the world will express these grievances. And so that's one data capture area that we can try to go after. Um, but we're working on other tools, things like um, radio, things like surveys, things like SMS text, right? People around the world communicate in different ways. Although I would also argue we, most of us even, um, in very kind of austere parts of maybe Latin America or Africa, you know, we most of us have a cell phone at this point. I think I read yes. somewhere in, in Africa, there's more um, cell phone subscription service subscriptions than clean water taps, which is a kind of an awful stat um, <clears throat> to, to, to have, but at the same time, it, it shows the connect, you know, the connectivity is really, really key for people in some capacity. So if we can start to think about that and yeah, it's something I talk about, um, uh, actually, just in another uh, 20 minutes here, I'm, I'm doing a, a, another kind of um, event while, where I'll talk a lot and take some probably pretty hard questions um, about, you know, how are we going to measure these things in markets like Mexico where, you know, folks aren't necessarily making a Twitter post or, you know, writing a news article when something goes wrong. There's kind of um, maybe less of a latency there and, and that, you know, kinetic social withdrawal of that license to operate happens pretty quickly after, you know, a perceived grievance. So, um, I would love to know how that how that event goes. You know, I, 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 yeah. I, I, I I've had it. <laughs> I'll send you the link. I'll send fun. you the link. Maybe you yeah, can ask me, me some link. questions. <laughs> send me a link. I'd love to know how it goes. Yeah, send me oh, a link. I may, I may jump on it as well. Now, yeah. onto the fun bit. You know about what you do. Now, there's an element of um, like I don't know what you call it. I don't know if I'll call it some sort of um surveillance intelligence with with what you do with using drones to capture data. Talk a little bit about that. How how has that been effective in security of some of the the, the areas you operate within, uh, the clients you work with? Sure. Yeah, and I'll have to be a bit general just because of the nature of our work. But I think um, you know, so you mentioned the imagery. There's um, different um, sources of um, geospatial imagery that we can ingest. So um, you mentioned drone or, or fixed wing aircraft. 
um, imagery maybe of a pipeline or, or an asset site. Um, and that has a lot of environmental use cases as well. Um, looking for things like leaks, looking for things like tailings, instability. There's just a lot of really cool technologies out there. And we actually actively seek out data partnerships to ingest um, a wide range of data and the, the kind of other categories that we can look at are um, Internet of Things. And then we also um, sensors, I should say. So um, things like water sensors, air sensors, um, dust and explosive vibration sensors. These things can help um, measure those kind of line items I'm mentioning under the-, the How ESG. does it, interestingly, how does the water sensor yeah. work? Yeah, uh, yeah. The reason why I'm asking that question, you probably know why. Yeah, of course. We're not going to, we're not going to go into it on this, on this show. But no, you we'll know, talk about I'll, that I'll, offline. I'll yeah, that of course. I, no, of course. I think there's a lot of practical uses, and I think I know exactly what you're talking about. We'll talk about that offline. But I think, yes. um, you know, essentially, uh, you know, there's effluence from uh, mining in particular. Water is a, a huge challenge just because there's a lot of heavy metals that are, you know, are put into um, the water for tailings to separate essentially, and you'll, you'll know from my vocabulary, I'm not exactly a, an adept geochemist here, but essentially we're separating the, you know, valuable ore from the rest of the, um, the, the ore body or the rock. And essentially that's, you know, pretty toxic activity. We're talking mm -hmm. like cyanide, cyanide and other, you know, mercury, other kind of, um, nasty things. So essentially, and, and it actually gets crazy where when you talk about small artisanal miners, you know, they're using mercury with their hands and that kind of thing. So that's really, really right. That, isn't that dangerous? Very, very dangerous. It's, it's, it's causing, um, you know, actually things like artisanal mining in the Amazon are causing social instability because of how, you know, medically and, you know, bad it is for you. And essentially you have illness and then that, that kind of social instability because of illness and medical issues allows for a whole host of yeah, because other the people that are exposed to these heavy heavy um metals yeah yeah exactly right. space, very, very yes it's not good at all and um there's a bit of a tie-in in certain regions between artisanal and illegal mining and and um and legal mining but but some places it's also very different so to back up though so i mean yeah to measure the the amount of mercury in the water for example in effluent areas so one thing we're doing right now is looking at um, indigenous and sacred areas and then also effluent water points from mining so you know are we being careful in sensitive areas with how we're treating water um, that's you know effluent from the mining site and so um, that's one way a, a water sensor can work but just broadly speaking um, the internet of things which is the idea that basically anything and the you know in mining they've really um, done this a lot with trucks and transportation but anything can have a sensor right whether it's my refrigerator or my car or whatever it happens to be and so not just our cell phones and computers um, will be connected to the internet going forward and that's going to expand uh, and what do these sensors connect to yeah sure so um, they produce data that then can be used after the fact you can do time series analysis um, you can produce alerts and reports um, actually in real time if you if you have that data. Um, so that can be you know wrapped up into different um, functions as well. But just the abil the ability to do that and looking at the emergent data sources for these industries with respect to ESG is just a big a big thing that we're engaged in right now. And and those those conversations should result in um, some partnerships as well. So yeah, believe it or not, we can do satellite, um, drone or fixed wing, Internet of Things, social media, and other non-social digital sources. And then you know the most important thing is is clients can upload their own data, right? So they can kind of 
um, they can they can manage their own environment um, with their own pre-existing data, which oftentimes we joke that Excel is our biggest competitor because that's where most <laughs> of the data lives right now. <laughs> yeah. Spreadsheets. So um, yeah, we can respond to that too. Yeah. It, 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 from the sounds of it, it sounds like um, you can use this system to also execute or, you know, police are not police police is not the word to carry out surveillance or security of an area it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be um you know pipelines or resources but isn't it something that governments can use when it comes to um security of the nation or for a city uh, yeah of course i think you know drones and security is another probably conversation for another podcast we can yeah, get into yeah this, that sounds this. a big area isn't it yeah, it's fairly, you, you want to be very, very, very careful with drones um, for a lot of reasons. I mean, in certain parts of the world, you, you know, at the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned Afghanistan. Obviously, there's one connotation of what a drone is in Afghanistan versus... Absolutely, you know, that's a good point. Versus, yeah, but but on the other side of that, too, I mean, um, at, there was an earthquake in Tanzania a few years ago, and um, actually, Lynx was involved in helping deploy or connect kind of the pieces um, on the ground. We weren't, we weren't there, unfortunately, but we connected a, you know, a drone imagery partner essentially um, with some folks on the ground to survey earthquake damage because yeah. it's pretty- It's a safer way to do it, isn't it? No, it's absolutely. And and for mining, you know, tailings are, are again, it's nasty stuff. And so you want to use a remote sensing device, you know, whether that's kind of imagery or a robot or something else, but our sensor. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I mean, so but 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 broadly speaking, you know, drones, satellite, um, and other aerial imagery is becoming much cheaper. And I think that you can use it for just a whole host of things. So environmental uses, you know, again, you emergency management uses, um, and yeah, security, absolutely. I mean, if um, you know, we have dangerous or unsafe conditions based on whether that's a conflict or whether mm -hmm. that's an you know, yes, operational yes. issue. Um, I think people are concerned yeah. about these things. Uh, it seems to be the biggest concern of most um, of most um, governments. Sure, and you know, and it's always does the does the security benefit outweigh some inevitable loss of liberty based on the fact that you have these persistent cameras in the sky? But again, um, I you know, I live in Colorado, for example, in the United States. Like, you can drive across Colorado, and it takes you know maybe ten or ten or twelve hours, and you're passing these vast areas where um, you know if there is an environmental incident, wildfires is something we deal with quite a bit, and so drones and satellite to detect. Um, environmental security issues like that is is a great use case and something that yeah. we are totally looking at um, partnerships around. Absolutely, interesting. That, that that's great. Thank you so much for that. No, thank you. Now, you re I mean, what you do is amazing, Trevor, and I can't imagine it's easy peasy. What's been the most challenging security project you've ever undertaken, and and how did you execute that? If you can speak about it. Yeah, um, that's really interesting. So I think the most challenging ones involve, uh, like I mentioned, the perception of um, of risk or grievance on the ground. And <clears throat> as we've seen in the United States, I mean, we see it globally, we see it everywhere. Um, the perception of reality for people due to the internet is actually perhaps more important than the reality, if I can make that statement. 
Yes. It's kind of bold, but yes. but that's, you know, we all have our biases. We all have, you know, we're not all great truth seeker. You know, we're not born great truth seekers because of the way our evolutionary biology works. We want to, you know, file things into categories and we, so, so that cognitive bias, um, that those are the, I mean, when it's just a, uh, Hey, where are we, we're mapping assets on the ground or we're looking at, um, you know, kind of, political factors or you know kinetic security factors that's one thing but again this perception by large groups of people um about whatever that grievance is against either you know another group another social group or a a company or a government um that's really the security issue of our age and i know i'm kind of uh, deflecting your question a little bit because I, I can't get into super super specific. You're giving you're giving context to it. <laughs> yeah, but that's it. That's the the hardest thing I can think of has to do with that. Where um, you know we we've worked on projects that have less to do with um, you know the kinetic where where is the what, but more how are people perceiving things, and that that becomes quite difficult. You've done projects in South America and Africa. What has been what has that experience been like? Yeah, you know, I love um, doing business in both places. We've, you know, absolutely executed contracts on both continents. Um, you know, one thing I'm looking very much forward to is getting back to traveling to um, some of these markets as well. Um, now that we're kind of hopefully escaping the grasp of long-term um, global coronavirus, so looking forward to that as well. Because um, you know, I love interacting with people and um, kind of being on the ground and even though we sell software it's it's very much a, a human activity for me it is yeah it is and you, you get better engagement when you meet people face to face yeah amazing trevor you've done so well to build your company to where it's at today and the things you're involved in some really amazing you know work you've done i know we've not talked about everything and we can't talk about everything on this show on this episode you've shared a lot of insights with our listeners and it's amazing to have someone like you, you know, show how possible it is to go out there and try to make a change that can create positive, that can create value for people, you know, if, you know, through, uh, through getting companies accountable, holding companies accountable, and also helping people feel safer in their environment. And you've taken on a huge challenge with that and well done with it. Now, if someone was, if someone was, you know, contemplating taking on a uh, uh, big risk, I'll call it, or some challenging piece of work or business to influence change in our society, what would you say to them? What you know, given your experience in doing this now, what would be your advice to um, people who are looking to go into business, you know, and they find that's a big, ri- they think it's a big risk, and there's some kind of fair element to get up and do it yeah it's a risk i mean let's not let's be clear about that i think um you know think about the world where we're headed some of these patterns and trends you see around you um and maybe pick you know an issue for us maybe it's esg you know for you and maybe something completely different and then i guess you know my advice as kind of a technologist would be try to understand how we can use just this immense amount of data around us to start to capture and understand and um, measure these the concept that you're, you have in mind or the problem you, you'd like to solve and you know, pretty soon you may find that um, that actor whether it's you know an NGO or a nonprofit or an institution or 
you know, we, I think we're really trying to create change by uh, engaging with enterprise because those are the ones that have the assets on the ground and you're kind of trying to make change in the arena rather than outside, so to speak. Um, so yeah, I don't know, just maybe pick your your passion, but also think about what the practical application of um, some sort of technology is to, to what you're trying to do and then go from there. Um, that, that, that would be the broad advice. And if anybody wants to, um, to reach out to me to discuss, you know, oh. what you're working on. Yeah. It's uh, Trevor at linksglobalintelligence.com. Very long <laughs> email address, uh, but also uh, links global Intel or Trevor Jones CEO on Twitter. Um, and yeah, visit our website and would love to chat. Um, if anybody out there is thinking about taking an, an entrepreneurial path, that's super, super important um, in our world is, it is, is. entrepreneurs stick together. It is absolutely. And great advice, Trevor. I always advise the same, start with your passion and build off from there. Amazing. You are a true risk taker. You are a true risk taker. You're a superhero. And I'm going to ask you one question to wrap things up now. And that's what right. I call the superhero risk question. Uh-huh. <laughs> Who would you consider yourself to be superhero wise? Oh man. Um, <laughs> and why? Oh, I think uh let's see for an entrepreneurial perspective I think I think Batman's probably a pretty good one. That's a I good think, one. I think Superman's a little a little toxic like if you're trying to be Superman. <laughs> why do you say that? Yeah, you got to just chill out and take a deep breath if you're trying to be Superman because that's because that's ultimately going to burn you out. But um it will Batman, do actually. I'm not saying Batman's home life was really great because, as I recall, I don't think he was uh, necessarily killing. I think he had a hard time growing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, exactly, right. And so, you know, he had a a tough work-life balance, but he did have a lot of tools, and he separated those. You know, that mode. Right. He was at home when he was at home. He wasn't Batman, but when it was time to um, to go be a superhero, you know, he he got the job done. So I think that's that's a that's my that's my healthy answer. <laughs> to the, <laughs> Amazing to the, to the um, superhero question. But um, no, Chesbel, thank you so much. Thank the, you so much, Trevor. It's been a pleasure having you here. Thank you Great so questions. much. You know, thank you for sharing your experience, and knowledge with our listeners, and bringing them closer to becoming successful risk takers like you. Amazing experience, Trevor, and um, all the best with the talk you're going to do in a few minutes. I hope that goes well, and I'd love to. I'd love to hear how it goes. Thanks, my friend. I'll send you the link right now, and uh, we'll continue the conversation in the future. All right, my friend. Thank you so much. Risk takers, don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Instagram at our handle, The School of Risk Podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or any of the apps you listen to your podcast on, so you don't miss out on future episodes. Until next time, risk takers. Stay focused on your purpose and let us grow the Risk Takers Tribe.